You are listening to Riverhouse Church's Sermon of the Week. We hope this talk equips and inspires you. Hello, everybody. Are we happy today? Me too. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we... uh, We come tonight, Jesus, just asking for more of your spirit, God. We come and just ask that you would just blow through this place. God, I ask that you would unite us as one family, that you would do something, that you would mark us, that you would teach us how to love, God. I ask that you would teach us how to love tonight, God. Would you mark our hearts and would you heal us, God? Would you heal us, Jesus? We believe with all that we have that you want to heal us tonight. That you want to mark us. That you want to make yourself known to us. And so, Jesus, we love you. We honor you and we ask for more in this house tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Wow. It's good to be in church, huh? Um, I just, I'm so thankful to be a part of this house. Um, I had so many meetings this week with people, and uh, I just left, and I'm like, Jesus, thank you so much that I get to be a part of a community with a bunch of people who are laying their lives down for Jesus. Like, It is such a gift to be a part of this house. It is such a gift. So just thank you. And I just felt like Jesus is just so proud of us. Like, he is so proud of what we're going after. He's so proud of the way that we're fighting for healthy family. He's so proud, and he's just, he's building us for something so much bigger than we even know, you know? Amen. Um, so if we have been in the season as a church. Um, I preached a couple weeks ago on um, really going on this journey of figuring out what it actually looks like in the midst of a life that is difficult, in the midst of a life that is hard, that is filled with challenges and frustrations and sickness and all this stuff. What does it actually look like for us to live a life where, where our burden is easy and the yoke is light? You know, we went on this journey, and and honestly, I preached this sermon a lot out of my own disturbance, out of my own frustration with reading the verse, come to me, all who are weary, I will give you rest. My burden is easy, and my yoke is light. And and I would would read that, and I would get so kind of frustrated growing up, because I'd be like, Jesus, I don't get this. Like, I do not get it. And so we've been on this journey, and honestly, I've been praying that prayer. Lord, would you show me, would you reveal to me what you mean? Because I believe with everything that the Bible is true. I believe the words of the scripture are true. And that if he says that his burden is easy and that his yoke is light, then it's true. Then it's true, right? And so really, I've been, I've been praying that prayer for, for probably five or six years. Um, and then this last year is when I feel like I've finally got some breakthrough, you know? It's finally where I realized a lot of the reasons the burden seemed heavy and the yoke was hard was because of striving and codependency and all this stuff, you know? Like we talked about. 
And so getting up there and preaching that message and saying like, hey, declaring that we will be a people who live in the easiness and the lightness of God, that we will be a people who will not strive but rest in him was a like a really big deal for me because I've been wanting to preach that sermon for so long because like I wanted to know it, you know? And it was honestly kind of like for me this declaration of like a new day. You know, of like, wow, God is good. But you know, when you have you ever told somebody about a breakthrough in your life? <laughs> and then the next day you're like, oh man, <laughs> I may have spoke a little too soon. <laughs> uh, that's kind of me the last few weeks. Um, but honestly, it's nothing to freak out about because what I've realized and what I've learned uh, in my walk with Jesus, that oftentimes after we get breakthrough in our own personal walk with Jesus, resistance comes very soon after because there is an enemy who wants to steal, he wants to kill, and he wants to destroy the revelation that God gives you. And so there's really no need to panic, right? There's no need to freak out. It's understanding what it is, right? And that is attack. But also I believe so many times God allows it to happen because there is always deeper that we can go. There is always a deeper place. There is always more revelation. Just when we thought we got breakthrough, God says, come deeper. Keep knocking. Keep going because I want to show you a deeper revelation of my heart so that this breakthrough isn't temporary, but actually something that can be built upon and last forever. Amen? And so I've really been praying because I've been like, God, I feel like I'm not striving. I feel like I'm not walking in codependency. So like, what is going on here? Why do the burdens feel so heavy right now? Why does life seem so difficult? I thought I got breakthrough. Dang it, I just preached on it, you know? And so I've spent a lot of my last few weeks since I preached that, I think it's about three or four weeks now, I've spent a lot of time in prayer and reading the Bible and just saying, God, just show me. Bring me, give me a deeper revelation of your heart because I believe, I believe, God, that you've called me to live in the easiness and the lightness of your will. I believe it. I really do. It's not just cheap talk. It's like it possesses me. I want to know what it means to lean on my beloved. I want to know what it means to be one with him so that every word in this book that he says, every promise that he says, I can say yes and amen. You know? Come on. And so I've realized a couple things as I've been reading and praying. I've realized uh, first that we as individuals each have our own unique responsibility to steward our relationship with Jesus. Like we, each and every one of us, like the great call of a Christian is to fall more in love with Jesus and become his disciple. And, and one of the, the primary ways in which we do that is we grow in relationship with him. We grow in intimacy with him. We knock, we pursue, and we really have to take responsibility of our own relationship with our creator. Right? And honestly, the pulpit exists in many ways for, for the pastor and preachers to preach sermons, to train and equip the saints for the work of ministry, i.e., growing in discipleship with Jesus. 
right? So a lot of the time in pulpit, in the pulpit and preaching, is, is a pastor preaching sermons. Is, and this is not just in this house. This is in most houses that are like trying to push the church as individuals to grow in right relationship with God. Amen? And that is totally right, and that is totally beautiful, and that is God's plan. But what I oftentimes think is overlooked is the reality that God's plan has always been family. His plan has always been family. And we also, as we have an individual responsibility to steward right relationship with God, we also have a responsibility to stay connected and lean on one another. We also have a responsibility to steward and work on and serve and lay down my life for my church, for the people that are the body of Christ. <laughs> Amen. And so I think the reality, though, is, is like oftentimes when we are reading the Bible, right, just like let's even take the book of Acts, for example. We're reading the book of Acts, and when we talk about the book of Acts, it's like, oh, man, people were healed in Peter's shadow, and Paul performed all these crazy, beautiful, awesome miracles. And all of those things are absolutely true, and they're absolutely powerful and beautiful. But my favorite part of the book of Acts that I've been reading lately is the reality that they were a community that so lived a life laid down for one another that they found favor with all people people they they so they it says in acts that they had everything in common that they literally combined all of their money in one pot and shared it together i'm saying yes and amen to that right now anybody else say amen all the millennials are like yep sign me up but seriously like Think about how radical of a lifestyle that is, though. Like, truly, they shared one another's burdens. Truly, they saw and they knew and they remembered that God's plan from the beginning of time for all of creation has been to be married to the body of Christ. Jesus did not marry us as individuals. He married us united. He married us as one. And so we can read the book of Acts and we can read about these powerful individuals who did mighty, mighty miracles. But I'm reading this book lately and I'm seeing that literally they found favor with all people and that the Lord added to their number daily. They lived a life so connected, so one, loving each other, bearing each other's burdens in such a powerful way that people saw that community. They saw how they were living, and they're like, I want to be part of that. And the miracles were the fruit of a community, of a church, of a body of believers laying their lives down for one another. Amen? I really believe from the bottom of my heart that, that this sermon today is not some new crazy revelation by any means, but just like honestly a prophetic moment of just declaring that we will be a house of unity, that we will be a house of, uh, that falls under the banner of being one. 
We will be the bride of Christ and we will be a church who is not more consumed with our own individual growth, but we will be a church who lays down our life for the people sitting to our right and to our left because God's plan is family. And we will be able to do so much more united than we ever will as powerful individuals. No, no, like, yeah, it's yes and amen, but it's like so true. Like as one body, as one people focused and determined on literally laying our lives down for each other is when we will see the gospel advance 10 times faster than we could have ever hoped or ever imagined. And I also think that I'm almost, like feel slightly immature even like breaking the two apart because how many of you know that actually your own spiritual growth with Jesus is only possible is if the person on your right and your left is also running after them with everything they have. You see what I'm saying? Robin, for example, she is my hero. Like, and I'm not, but she really is like... <laughs> Gosh dang it, I knew I was going to cry today. But she, but she is my hero because I saw how this, when I first met Robin and I first heard her story and I first lived how she heard how she loved Jesus through all of the stuff that she's gone, that have gone on in her life, it gave me hope. It gave me a passion. It gave me a desire to run after Jesus with everything I have in the midst of crisis. You know, but that growth, that doesn't happen if she doesn't live her part in the body of Christ. You see what I'm saying? It's really good. <laughs> just, just to let you know. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. I wasn't feeling this confident earlier today. <laughs> I was like, look, I barely wrote any notes. I was like, Lord, what am I going to preach today? <laughs> oh, man. But I was, uh, I was reading the book of Nehemiah this week, and, and, and I've read this book so many times. How many of you know the story of Nehemiah? Yeah, it's a powerful, powerful story, um, and I'm not going to get into it because it's not where we're camping today, but it's a powerful story of, of the cupbearer of a king, Nehemiah, when um, uh, Israel was in exile under the Babylonian reign, and uh, Nehemiah was in a different city. He was not in Jerusalem, and, he, and Jerusalem was in utter, utter turmoil. They were not doing well, and Nehemiah, who was an Israelite, heard that the walls around Jerusalem had not been rebuilt in 70 years and that they, they just rebuilt a new temple in Jerusalem and essentially he took on the burden of himself saying that this isn't good. The, the temple needs to be protected. The city needs pr to be protected and it's this epic story where he looked at the king of Babylon and he said, can I please go home? Can I restore the walls of my city? Can I go? Can I build? Can I do this, right? And this guy has no idea what he's building. He's, he's a cupbearer. He's not even a construction worker or anything like that. But he's just, he's burdened that I have to do something to keep the city of God safe. And so he, get, he anyways, long story short, I don't want to get it too into it. But he gets into Jerusalem and it's this epic, epic story where he gathers the leaders of Jerusalem and he says, look, we need to rebuild this wall. 
We need to rebuild this wall to protect the city. And so many times when we hear this story, we hear that Nehemiah rebuilt the walls around Jerusalem in 52 days when they couldn't get it done in 70 years. And it's true. Nehemiah led the charge to where they rebuilt the walls around Jerusalem, a whole city, in 52 days that they could not get done in 70 years. That's crazy. And and all the time when we read this, we hear that Nehemiah rebuilt the wall. Nehemiah rebuilt the wall. But I was reading this week, and this is why you don't skip genealogy in the Bible. (laughs) Genealogy is so boring. Um, But it is. Come on. You're lying if you're saying otherwise. But I read the genealogy-ish part of this. And after... Nehemiah gathered the leaders and said, let us rebuild the wall. It then goes and talks about what each people group in Israel did to contribute to building the wall. But here's what's powerful. It talks about what the Levites did. The Levites, like Sue's just talked in transition, they were in charge of worship. They were in charge of church service, yet they were there building the walls. The nobles, the people who were rich and just drank wine all day and got fat, they were serving. They were building the walls. The peasants were serving and building the walls. All of Israel united and actually laid down their nine-to-five job for the sake of the community to keep it safe and to keep it whole. You see, and I think sometimes in community... (laughs) If we want to see God move in a powerful way, how many of you know that sometimes that means you're going to have to do something that you don't necessarily want to do or even feel called to do? <laughs> like the Levites were called to be worship leaders, yet they're swinging hammers, holding spears to protect them from the enemy. I don't think they wanted to do that. Ask the worship team. I don't think they want to be doing that. But you know what? For the sake of the advancement of the gospel, I will do anything. I don't care if I'm on the prayer team. I don't care if I'm cleaning up coffee after church. I don't care what I'm doing. I want to see the gospel displayed on this earth in a powerful way. And if that means that we need to do stuff that we don't necessarily feel called to do, we need to do it for the sake of our family. Amen? Because that's when we're going to see God blow through us, and that's when we're going to become an attractive people. We're going to become an attractive people, not when everyone gets to do what they want to do. (laughs) That's not that attractive. You know, that's what most of humanity does anyways. They just do what they want to do. But we will become attractive as we lay down our lives and actually start doing the things that we don't want to do because it's for the sake of others. Amen? Awesome. That's my intro. We're going to be camping in the book of Ephesians today. Um, It's one of my favorite books in the whole entire world. Um, I encourage you to read it because it's just beautiful. Um, but before, before we jump in, um, I'm going to set some context because I really do believe it is super, super important. Um, so the letter to the Ephesians, the letter to the church at Ephesus is different than Paul's other letters that he writes to a lot of the other churches. Um, the letters that he writes to the other churches, many of them are answering specific questions that these local churches were having. 
Um, in the book of Ephesians, we see something different. Um, this letter was probably used um, for multiple different churches in the city of Ephesus because it is a much more general theological framework where Paul essentially is given the theology of the gospel. He's giving the theology of what the gospel is and what the church is supposed to look like in the culture of Ephesus at the day. And it's important for us to know who the people of Ephesus are. And they are a people, it's the second largest city in the Roman Empire, who is heavily, heavily influenced by the Greco-Roman ideal. And the Greco-Roman ideal essentially is a culture and a thing that said the pinnacle of human significance is in the human body and what it looks like, sexuality, how ripped they are, how athletic they are, how successful they are, is all determined on the human body. It was a, essentially the theology of human glory right? They, they needed to look a certain way. They needed to act a certain way. And there was cultural pressure to be this perfect physical specimen. I probably wouldn't have made it very far in that culture. <laughs> when I got married, I gained a few pounds. I'm not going to lie. I'm working on it. Ripped by Rev. That's the plan Jordan has me on. Um, but there really, there really was this really intense culture. And, and I am going to get a little bit probably PG-13R here. Um, so just warning. But honest, just because I really believe it's powerful to depict like this culture. Um, the culture was so intense that they had this thing called the exposure of infants. That if a child was born and did not look the way that the parent wanted it to look like, if it didn't have, if it had any deformity, if it had anything wrong that the parents didn't like, the color hair, the nose, too plump, whatever, literally the parents could get rid of the child. And that's, that's how much cultural pressure there was to look and act a certain way. And so what they would do oftentimes is if they had a baby that they didn't like, they didn't want, they would put it up on a mountain outside of the city and they would leave it there. And oftentimes it would die. And other times um, people who could not afford to buy slaves would go and choose to raise a baby as a slave for their family because it was cheaper. And it's to this church that Paul's writing it's to this church, and this church is filled, we can assume is filled with slaves and slave masters. It's filled with both Jew and Gentile, probably mostly Gentile. It's filled with a bunch of people who have been told their whole life they need to look a certain way, they need to act a certain way, you need to be this, otherwise you're not good enough. There, it was filled with people who were outcasts and rich and famous and nobles. And it is to this church that Paul is writing, which is why in Ephesians 1 and 2, Paul is doing nothing but speaking identity over them. And he is looking at them and he says, hey, you are adopted into the family of God. You have been formed for generations. You are a chosen people who is blessed with every spiritual blessing. Huh. You are a chosen adopted people <laughs> blessed with every spiritual blessing. Can you imagine what it would have been like to listen to that? This, 
culture where in this church you have a slave and a slave master sitting and you're both said you're chosen. You're, you're both said you have every spiritual blessing. You're both adopted into the family of God. Amen? And it's this powerful, powerful passage. Honestly, now I encourage you, go home and read Ephesians 1 and 2 through that lens and you will just get wrecked. You will get wrecked because he is speaking the truth of who they are over him. Essentially saying, it does not matter what culture has told you. It does not matter if you were left on a hill to die. It does not matter if you don't look a certain way. You have been adopted before the foundations of the earth. You have been chosen and redeemed and are filled with the spirit of God. Amen. And it's to these people that he's writing. And after he speaks identity to them, what we see in chapters 3 is Paul then starts uh, laying out what it looks like to live a lifestyle of Jesus. And it talks about living a spirit-filled life, living a life dependent on the spirit. And then, as you can imagine, in this church, there is probably a lot of very uncomfortable social dynamics. Like, can you imagine, like in American church, there's uncomfortable social dynamics at times. Can you imagine what it would have been like in this church? All the different disagreements, all the different tensions that needed to be navigated. And Paul can foresee all the difficulties that this is going to cause. And what he says in chapter 4, verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And he goes on and he says, each of you have been blessed with the spiritual gift. Some of you, apostles, prophets, teachers, evangelists, saints to train and equip for the work of ministry. Do you hear the unity in this passage? There's one God. There is one hope. There is one baptism. You are one people. You are one people because why? God's plan has always been family. And he didn't want to look at this church and, and say, oh, just you elite people, just you're, just you're the powerful ones. No, you are all in one family filled with one hope and one God, and one spirit. So do whatever you need to do. I don't care, rich people, how hard it is for you to accept that these people are considered the same now, but they are. So do everything in your power to maintain unity with the spirit by the bond of peace. Amen? And so I really... I've been so, I've done a little bit of a word study here, and, and I want to talk about the phrase that, to bear with one another in love. Um, because I feel like this phrase, to bear with one another in love, is a phrase that actually, um, 
encapsulates, I guess, like all of the essence of what this passage means. And essentially, for the early listener listening to this, they, they would have heard um, the word bears is the same word in 1 Corinthians 13 that says love bears all things. And this word bear in the, in the Greek implies it speaks of a physical roof that like covers a house. And so when they would have heard this, they would have said, hey, act as a roof in love over one another. And what does a roof do? A roof protects us. A roof protects us from storms that are going on outside. It protects us from extreme heat. It protects us from rain. It protects us from snow and hail. And so Paul is speaking to these people and he is saying, hey, the way that you maintain unity with one another is by being a safe people. By being a people who look above all else to protect one another in love. Because he knows that he's no dummy, right? He knows that in life, there are going to be seasons where we go through storms. There are going to be seasons that we wake up and it feels like we cannot keep going any longer. There are going to be seasons that are hard and difficult. And what Paul is saying is church, body of Christ, when people in your church are going through difficulties, when storms are happening, act as a protection over them so that I can actually do something inside of them. Because how many of you know that sometimes when there's a storm going on outside of our life, it's just because God wants to cultivate something new and powerful inside of us? That's good. Because it's true. And this is why the enemy wants to come. And he wants to steal, kill, and destroy because he wants you to live in that storm forever. Because how many people do you even know that have been wiped out by storms? How many people do you know that when life got hard, they truly did give up and said, I'm not going to keep going anymore. In this verse, man, it means so true to me. Like, I'm a Christian. I'm saved. I'm a follower of Jesus because he met me. But I promise you, I stayed a Christian Because the family of God came around me in my storms, in my difficulties, in the moments where I wanted to give up and I wanted to stop and I didn't want to keep going. And they brought me in and they kept me safe. They brought me in and they kept me safe. I can't tell you, I have so many people who've done this for me. But do you know how many people who don't have that for them I feel like I've been super blessed and lucky, honestly. Because so many people have not had that experience with the church. And burdens will become easy and light when we actually look to act as a protection for one another. That's when burdens will be easy and light. But if we are so caught up with our own personal growth that we don't actually look and seek out to protect other people, to protect them from the attacks from the enemy, then we aren't going to be a healthy family. We need to fight for each other. We need to contend for each other. It's, it's really good to say, but honestly, like, we need to be a people who pray for people who are going through storms. 
We need to be a people that literally when difficulties and struggles are going on, we come and we say, how can I serve you? How can I lay my life down for you? Because that's what we're called for. That's what Jesus did for us. In, in his storm, in his difficulty, he laid down his life and he served me and you. And so I really believe and I am passionate about the reality that we need to be a people who are safe. The church needs to become safe again. The church needs to become safe. Why, why, is it, why can't we talk about homosexuality in the church? Why, why can't we talk about politics? <laughs> why? We should be safe. We should know, even in the midst of disagreements, what, why do people leave churches for theological disagreements? I'm, like, we should be so safe and love each other so well that we can actually stay in one house, in one church, and disagree with each other but love each other. No, like seriously though. Like, that needs to happen. And, 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 and I really believe this needs to be the focus of how we are going to build. And if we actually want to be a nameless and faceless movement, we need to be a people who actually serve one another, protect one another, and stay put. Stay put. No matter if we disagree, because we love each other. Amen? You know, but community is hard. You know, like, it's good to get passionate up here and preach this message, but, but the reality is, is community is really difficult because it requires vulnerability. It requires that you don't walk in pride. It requires humility. It requires you doing things that you don't necessarily want to do that may seem like an inconvenience. In Galatians 5.13, it says, You were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge in the flesh. Rather, serve one another in love. We are a free people, and because we are a free people, we serve. We are a free people. And because we are free, we serve. Because we are free, we love. Because we are free, we lay down. And when Paul says, don't use your freedom to indulge in flesh, I really hate how they, they translated that in the English. Because he is not speaking to moral, like inappropriate sexuality, alcoholism. He is speaking to don't use your freedom for your own ego. Use your freedom to lay your life down and to love above all else. And then 6-2, again, he says, bear one another's burdens. My burden is your burden. Your burden is my burden. Doesn't mean I'm going to come fix your problem for you. But what it does mean is that I'm going to be there and I'm not going anywhere. 
for my family's problems. I'm going to stay put. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to choose love no matter how hard it is. Amen? And so I know there are people in this church, I, because I talk with people, that, that say, great, great, awesome sermon, love that you want to be a house, love that you want um, to be a family and community. Um, and I see the group that truly is family in this church, and then there's the other group that, that maybe is the outcast and doesn't feel like family. Right? I know those are dynamics that is in every church. They're in every church. And um, no matter where you're at, if you are hungry for community, like, you're not going to get spoon-fed community. It takes work, which is why it's so hard, which is why so many churches have settled for just preaching and worship. You know? But if we want to be a family, it's not going to be spoon-fed. It's going to require work. It's going to require you actually sitting down with someone and say, hey, I'm struggling and I need help. For years and years, I did not have community. And I cannot point the finger at anybody but myself. Because I chose to not be vulnerable. I chose to not show people what I actually was going through, what I was actually struggling with. And you can pick up on that. You can pick up on pride. And because I was prideful and did not want to bring people into my world to what I was going with, I was alone and lonely. And so if you want community, if you want family, it's time to open up. We, this is a safe place. We are a safe church. We are not afraid of any, I, and I'll speak for Jordan here too, because I know we, we talk about this. We're, there's no like unfair, like unsafe question when we're family. And so if you want community and you feel like you don't have it here, my encouragement for you is to press in. My encouragement for you is to get vulnerable. My encouragement for you is to serve. My encouragement for you is to go to revival group. I swear, I lose my mind sometimes. People will come up to me and complain and say, oh, I can't find community, and then you don't serve or go to revival group. <laughs> Things that drive pastors crazy. <laughs> you know, we need to take the responsibility on ourselves to engage in community, to fight for one another. Amen? Awesome. I'm done. So why don't you stand up? Oh, I wish I didn't sweat so much. Seriously, it's probably, I told you I wouldn't fit the whole Greco-Roman ideal. <laughs> oh, let's just hold hands with our neighbor. Jesus, we thank you for family. I thank you, God, that in the midst of my storms, in the midst of my difficulties, in the midst of my trials, 
You sent me people to act as a protection. You sent people, you send people to cover us, to keep us in the family of God. And we just together as one church, as one family say that we will lay down our lives for our church. We will lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters and we'll act as a protection for one another because we want you to cultivate something new and powerful in us, God. Do something new in us, Jesus. Do something new and powerful. We ask God, we ask that you would transform our hearts and that you would give us the courage to get vulnerable with one another. Give us the courage, Jesus, to embrace family. For all of you who have been hurt by the church in the past, I just feel like I hear the Holy Spirit saying to you right now, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But you're called for community. You're called to family. So you can't be offended anymore. And so Holy Spirit, I pray that your love comes in. And and I, I... The offense is legitimate in a lot of ways because the church can't be hurtful. But God says it's it's time to let down that wall and let love win. Let love win. So Jesus, we love you. Help us get over our pride. Help us get over the areas that we don't want to serve because of our own ego. Empower us and strengthen us, God, to do the things that we maybe don't want to do, but do them for the sake of our brother and sister. We love you, we praise you, we honor you. In Jesus' holy, mighty, and powerful name, amen. Awesome, guys. Well, hey, go out, be blessed this week. And if you need ministry, if you have fears with community, come on up and receive some ministry time. Thanks for listening to the Riverhouse Podcast. For more information, visit riverhouseministries.com.